Good morning. Well, as many of you know, and maybe you see in the, the note, the order of worship, uh, during the season of Epiphany, the season of light, we are looking at the early chapters of First Samuel. And as I've been reminding us that as part of the series that we are focusing on a theme from the book that God sees differently than we see. That when God looks, God looks at our hearts, but that when humans look, we look only at the outward appearance. That God sees our hearts. And so we've been thinking about the question, what does it mean for God to see into the depths of who we are? What does it mean for us to encounter, to meet God at these places of hope, of fear, places of grief, shame, joy? And as part of trying to explore that, we have looked at the stories of the people we meet in 1 Samuel. We looked at Hannah's story, at Eli's story. And this morning we're going to look at Samuel, especially as he hears a call from the Lord to be his prophet for his people. And just as a way of context before we read from our passage, it's good to understand kind of where we are, that at this point Samuel is serving in the temple with Eli, the high priest. At this time, before a permanent temple was built in Jerusalem, there was a tabernacle, a movable temple that was in Shiloh, just north of Jerusalem. And then as part of his miraculous birth, Samuel's birth, Hannah, his mother, had promised that Samuel would serve the Lord all his days. And so while Samuel's parents visited him regularly, from the time that he was able, he grew up in the temple under the care of Eli, the high priest. And so it's also important to know that the temple and Eli's family is a mess, <laughs> right? It's, if you were here last week, you know that things were chaotic in the temple. Priests taking things by force, priests sleeping with women in the temple, all sorts of things that are chaotic and a mess. And in this time of unrest and corruption in Eli's family and at the temple, it's very unlikely, it seems, unlikely time and place that here we would find someone who rises up as a faithful representative of God, a faithful light who represents God to his people. It seems unlikely that this would be the time that someone would hear God's call, God's word. But yet, even in the midst of chaos and confusion, our passage tells us that God, the creator of heaven and earth, calls Samuel by name. He calls to him, and that calling of his name, calling of the Lord, brings Samuel comfort, affirms him, but as we also see, it disrupts him. It disrupts his life. And while it disrupts him, it also eventually brings him freedom. So we'll see those things this morning, hopefully, as we look at Samuel's experience of God's call. This is 1 Samuel 3, verse 1 through 19. You can follow in your Bible or your order of worship. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. 
And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you again, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But as Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me at all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. This is God's word. It's given for our good. Let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for gathering us here, and we pray that you would allow us to hear, to hear your word. Lord, we are people who know many voices, many competing words, many distractions, and so, Lord, we ask by your spirit that you would speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at this experience of Samuel, as we look at this idea of God calling him, there's three parts this morning of our sermon I want us to go through. I want us to talk about the circumstances of the call, the hearing of the call, and then the impact of this call. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, as we just read. And in addition to that opening statement, the circumstances are described telling us that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. In addition, it goes on to tell us about Eli and about Samuel laying down, but also a note saying the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now, those of us, because we are far removed from that setting, we might not notice right away that there is a contrast in these opening statements. The word of the Lord is rare, was rare in those days, yet the lamp of the Lord hasn't gone out, has not yet gone out. The lamp was in the holy place of the temple. One person describes it as part of the temple furniture. I like that term. When I think of furniture, I think of couches and love seats. This is not one of those things, not just a couch. This is a solid gold lampstand that was in the holy place of the temple the place where God's spirit would dwell, the place where the priests would come to make sacrifices. And this golden lampstand had, it was a seven-branch menorah, made to look like a tree, and at the end of each branch there was a cup that looked like an almond or a flower. The almond was a symbol of hope in that setting. And the law said that the priests were to do a number of things, but one of the things the priests were to do was to make sure that that lamp always was burning that that lamp was not to go out. And that continuous nature of the burning of the light symbolized God's presence. 
And it symbolized God giving light to his people. The priest was to keep the light burning. But I don't know if you notice, it's interesting in our passage, it suggests that it's on the verge of going out. It has not yet gone out, which is strange because it should not ever go out in the temple. You see, even in the midst of great problems, even when God's word is rare and hardly known, this light reminds us, reminded those who hear this account, that the Lord is still present. I already referenced this, but last week we mentioned Eli's family. Eli was the high priest, and his sons, Phineas and Hopni, were the priests. But they were not known for holiness or love, but for gluttony and the selfish use of power. Using their privileged position to sleep with women in the temple, using their power to by force take the meat from those people who came to make sacrifices. The priests were using the people rather than serving them, viewing the temple through the lens of their own desires. And such circumstances, such chaos and corruption surely made the people ask, what is the point? What's the point of going to the temple? Religion is an expression simply of human power, human manipulation. And given the unrest and the corruption, this is an unlikely time and place for one to rise up as a faithful priest. And this discouragement among the people arose among those who had come longing for something different. The temple should be something different. But it wasn't just amongst the people. It surely impacted Samuel as well, the individual experience of Samuel. We don't know how this young man processed these things, processed Eli's sons and the chaos going on. But maybe we can try to enter in. Maybe you can relate to knowing confusion, uncertainty, slowly recognizing that your home is not functioning the way it's supposed to function. Beginning to have an idea or see, get a sense for those who are caring for me are acting in deeply broken and inconsistent ways. In this unlikely time, in this broken place, the light, the lamp of the Lord still burns While dimly lit, it still flickers, and it tells us that there is still hope. And this is one of the key messages of of 1 Samuel and the Scriptures in general, that even in the midst where things are rare, that people know God, or that there is corruption and brokenness, there is still hope. And the hope here is expressed in the giving of God's Word. The hope is expressed, it is embodied in God calling into a situation that is corrupt and broken and confusing. God enters a broken and lonely place and he calls to Samuel. And so we see the context of this call, but we see also that we are invited to hear the call as well. The Lord calls and Samuel responds. Samuel hears. And we like maybe to think for our own selves that it's as simple as that, right? God calls. Samuel hears and he knows what's going on. But I'm sure you notice that our passage is almost a comical nature, that it's not straightforward. And we have to wonder part of why, why is it this way? And I think part of it is to show us that when God speaks, it is often mysterious. That when God is speaking here, that something new is happening. 
that God is disrupting the way things have been. We're told that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and earlier we were told that Phineas's, I mean, sorry, Eli's sons didn't know the Lord, but there, Eli's sons, they didn't know the Lord as priests, meaning they chose to walk in ways of their own desires. Here it's that Samuel has not seen or experienced God's call in this manner, so something new is happening. And it is mysterious and it's confusing. For Samuel right away is willing, but doesn't understand what is happening. Here I am. He runs to Eli, thinking that it's Eli's voice. I did not call you. Go lie down. Maybe some of us can relate to this scene. Imagine Eli thinking, I called the boy. He doesn't come. Now he's coming when I don't call him. I'm trying to sleep. He's waking me up. What's going on? After three times, eventually Eli understands and perceives that maybe the Lord is calling to Samuel. Speak, Lord, for your servant is hearing. And so Samuel goes and he lies down in his place. We're told about the setting. We're told about the time. We're told about the condition of Eli and his eyesight. We're told about Samuel laying down. But the main verb that runs through this section is called. The Lord called. Eleven times in a handful of verses to call, to summon, to speak to a particular person. The Lord is the subject, and the Lord has called Samuel, literally saying his name, Samuel, Samuel. And here, to call someone, to call a particular person, it suggests, it makes a connection, a relationship that has been established. And what is the response to such a call? It's to hear and to answer. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. And it's helpful for us to obviously acknowledge that hearing in this case is not just being able to know that there's noise happening in the room. Hearing here and other places in scriptures becomes synonymous with faith. To receive and to hear and to respond. Eli rebuked his sons. Why are you doing the things you're doing? Sexual morality and re religious extortion. But they did not hear his rebuke. By contrast, Samuel hears the Lord speaking even when Eli did not. Samuel hears, opens his ears. We can think about the significance of words. Think about language and, and words in your life. Words are composed of scant physical matter, as one author says, tiny scratches of graphite, minuscule droplets of ink, invisible rays from your screens, sound waves from human breath. But no matter how small these things seem, no matter how inconspicuous the material substance, we know that words carry great significance. In some senses, we could say we are our words, and our words are us. And most of us are taught, or we come to realize relatively quickly in life, that words have implications, that the way we use them matters. And sometimes it's overwhelming to think about or to experience, but we know that a, a thoughtfulness can make a life just like a thoughtlessness can break one. And this can be argued that language is the most distinct 
thing about being human. The way we select and assemble our words, the way that we connect ourselves to other people, develop intimacy with words. And I say all that for us to think about our own experiences, but eventually to see that our passage, when it talks about calling and hearing, our passage invites us to see God as one who speaks and one who calls to his people. We might take that for granted, having maybe being used to church or growing up in the Christian tradition, but it is significant to think that the God of all creation, the one who makes what we can see and what we cannot see, speaks and communicates to us. And that part of our humanness, to know fully our humanness, is to receive such words and to know them. So we've talked about the circumstances. We've seen that at the heart of our passage is God calling and Samuel hearing. And I want to finish our time looking at the impact of this call. The impact on Samuel, but through Samuel to ourselves as well. There's two parts of this impact I want us to think about. The first is that this call is personal. This call is personal. Each morning the priests were called to gather in the temple for worship. I don't know if that was happening in Shiloh or the way it was supposed to, but the law directed the priests to gather. And as part of their time of gathering in the temple, they were to recite the Shema. This is a Jewish prayer from the Scriptures. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. A form of confession, a form of community expression, remembering the uniqueness of God. Not that God is being one is his name, but an adjective of God's uniqueness. There is none like God, above all things. But I say that, if you can picture the priest gathering and saying those words, it could have been, simply have been saying a prayer or a confession or just a statement that we recite. God is one. God is one. But that's not what's being said. It starts by saying, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. It's not just a statement. It is a true statement. But all who would say it and all who would be around would be invited to receive it into their life. You see, God's call, God's word, described as a light that shines upon our path, a light that illuminates the dark, a light that reminds us that hope still exists even when things are broken. That word is not just an objective fact, but it is called for us to personally experience it, for us to hear it and to receive it. And as part of this, I don't know if you have thought again, thought about the unique nature of our scriptures. God could have just given us a list of propositions that we are to take. But isn't it interesting that we receive letters, prayers, stories? And I would suggest to you that the genre Part of what that's doing, I believe, is that God's inviting us to participate, to see that not only is truth being proclaimed, but it is truth for us to personally hear and respond to. When the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, he doesn't just tell them that God, that Jesus is God's son and that Jesus died. He does do that. 
but he also prays for them in the letter, I pray that you may have the power of God to grasp how wide and how long and how high, how deep God's love for you is in Christ. Do you see? He's telling us truth, but he's inviting us to participate, to hear. I think about my own life. It's not, we read the scriptures, it's not just that God is all-knowing, but that God knows me completely. No part of me that he does not know. It's not just that God is love, but that God loves me. And it's not just that God is faithful, but that God has made a promise. Astoundingly, God has made a promise that even though he sees me completely, that there is nothing within me or around me that can separate from me from his love in Christ. And that is true not just for me, but it is true for you. When Samuel hears this call, Samuel, Samuel, God calling him by name, we are reminded that he doesn't just hear, but that he personally is called by God. The prophet Isaiah is saying to his people, I will call you by name, you are mine. And Jesus, when he says he's the good shepherd, says that my sheep know my voice. They know me and I know them. God's call to you to know and receive his word is personal. Not just information that we would know and recite, but that would speak God's promises and truth to us. There's a scholar named Andrew Walls who studied missions and culture. He talks about that experience. He calls it the indigenizing principle. I've also heard it called the incarnational principle. This idea that when God comes to us, when God's word comes to us, it meets us wherever we are. The word is personal. God accommodates himself calls to us by name. God's word can be known and it isn't meant to be a place in which we can feel at home. It can be known and to be welcomed. Andrew Walls also talks about another principle. And it's one that points to another type of impact that Samuel had. In addition to the indigenizing principle, Walls talks about a pilgrim principle. The pilgrim principle says that the word draws near but the word also whispers in our ears that we have no abiding city and it warns us to be faithful to Christ will mean personal repentance turning away from ways that we want or desires that or paths that we have in front of us it whispers in our ears that we have no abiding city and to be faithful to Christ to receive and hear his word will put us out of step with our own place, our own people, our own society. And you see that Samuel experiences that. The emotion that we're told that he has when he hears God's word is fear. For not only has he been called by name, but when the word comes, he is called to speak judgment upon the situation he finds himself in. Samuel was given the task that was difficult. And I want to be clear. What I'm, I'm not saying is that by hearing the word in your life that you then have free reign to walk around and judge the people around you. 
Sometimes that just comes so naturally to us, right? (laughs) The church, we can make that mistake using the word to judge others or using the word to support our own ideas. Samuel's experience is unique. Called to be a prophet in Israel, called to rebuke Eli in his house, called to say to all those around, the temple is corrupt and this is not how it's supposed to be. And Samuel hears this word and he's just scared to get up. He's scared to tell Eli this news. It disrupts his life. But what we'll see is that when he follows that word, what that word does ultimately is bring freedom to Samuel. To walk in new ways into a way not of brokenness and loneliness, but a way of light. And God's word is doing the same thing in our lives if we hear it as well. Not only will it personally comfort us, but it will speak disruption. Speak disruption to who you are and to where you are, calling us to walk in new ways or turn in different paths. So this morning I want us to close by the invitation and the call for us to hear God's word. God has given us his scripture. God has given us the word written that points to the word incarnate Jesus, the light of the world. This word is described as a light in the darkness, the lampstand that still burns even in the midst of brokenness. It's described also as bread in the midst of famine, water in a dry and weary land. It is the words that will help you to know yourself. And that's why we gather in worship, that we gather around his word. And I invite you in small groups, or in classes, or in your own life to study, not just to receive information, but that God himself is speaking and calling to you through his word. I pray that you would hear, and that we'd respond with faith, but also repentance, that God could walk and lead us in new ways. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you, Lord, that your word is true, and that you have spoken it to us, We pray, Lord, that you would meet us and that when you disrupt us, Lord, that we would see it's for our good, but Lord, that we would hear our own name, that you have called us to yourself in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.